lest I forget again. Would you mind passing those out, brother? All right. Good morning. I didn't hear what you said. Oh. All right, turn to the book of Hebrews and then go back and then go back one book. Yeah. Well, <laughs> predictable, huh? All right, Philemon. This actually should be our last look at the book of Philemon here this morning. Of course, uh Hopefully by now you're aware that the book, I mean, it's obviously just a short uh, little epistle in the New Testament. In fact, what, 25 verses, 445 words, if I counted right. And so it's, it's short, but yet it's really packed with a lot of stuff that's uh, good spiritual lessons for us. It's a personal letter from Paul to Philemon concerning somebody else, Onesimus, remember, uh, he apparently was a slave to Philemon who had run away, and perhaps, we don't know what all he had done, but he had wronged Philemon in perhaps multiple ways. We don't know the extent of it, but nonetheless, he had done wrong. It's interesting that we're not told the exact things, uh, and I guess for the purpose of the letter, it wasn't necessary because obviously both Onesimus and Philemon knew the specifics of that. Uh, and it's, you know, it's possible Paul didn't even know the specifics. I don't know. But nonetheless, perhaps that also illustrates for us, uh, if you want to say, some of the, a picture of the extent of forgiveness. And so really, this letter, again, it's a personal letter for a specific reason, but because it's inspired of God and included in the Scripture, obviously there's purposes for it, more than just a personal uh, appeal from one man to another for a specific thing, which is an important appeal, but uh, there's obviously some purpose in it for us, some spiritual lessons and so on. And the biggest overarching lesson, I would say, has to do with the whole concept of forgiveness that's involved in salvation. Now, you remember that uh, the three main characters, Paul, Philemon, Onesimus, they, again, in looking at this from a, you know, a, a doctrinal standpoint, they represent, picture, uh, I'm going to word it this way, hopefully you take it the right way, but the key players, if you would, in salvation, all right? which, of course, are the people needing saved, uh, us, sinners, which Onesimus represents, and then, of course, uh, God the Father. In this instance, uh, Philemon would picture God the Father, his role, if you want to say, in the forgiveness. He's the one that has to, if you want to say, declare forgive, you know, forgiven, has to declare the forgiveness is taking place, but then there's Paul, who in this case, he's the one who's the, the go-between between the two men. He's the one that's, that's doing what's needed to bring about the possibility of forgiveness in this. 
And that, of course, represents the Lord Jesus Christ. And I think the biggest thing, to me anyway, in this letter, it just reiterates and really, really drives home the whole point that salvation is really all about, it's all wrapped up in, it's all because of, and perhaps every other preposition in the English language you might want to attach to that, it's, it's about Jesus. It really is. From God's perspective, salvation is about Jesus. From our perspective, it's about Jesus. It, I mean, it's, it's all about Christ. And because of who He is and because of what He has done, He makes it possible that anybody could be saved. There's obviously absolutely no one on their own merits that can, can be saved. And there is no way that God can or could save anyone and still be God without the Lord Jesus, without what he's done. Uh, I mean, it's, it's an amazing thing, the, the picture in this letter, when you think about it. At least from my perspective, it's amazing. From God's, it's not, because he obviously orchestrated everything, and he uh, knew all about it and had it written down and included and, and so on. But it, it's an amazing thing. So do you remember the key word? I, I'm just trying to review a little bit here. Uh, what we're going to look at this morning is just kind of two main, and they're not the most, you know, not the biggest reasons, but two other reasons that we'll see tacked on here of the appeal that Paul's making to Philemon on behalf of Onesimus. We'll see those and then some, some closing words. But uh, I thought it was appropriate to kind of just kind of go back, take a few minutes and, and kind of pull all this back together here. But what, what was the key word in the appeal that Paul was making? We saw that word two times. It was in verse 12 and in verse 17. You remember that key word? Receive. And the idea of that word, there, there's receive, the English word in our, in our New Testament, receive, uh, can reflect a lot of different things. Okay, uh, there, are, there are several, at least three, four that I can think of, different words in the, used in the New Testament that are translated receive. And they all have a little bit different kind of angle and particular meaning involved in them. This particular word has the idea of receiving, but it's the idea on your part, you have to decidedly you know, take something, receive it, kind of pull it into yourself and, you know, in a welcoming idea, all right? You're bringing it in close, that idea. Um, it, it's, in fact, the majority of the times, by the way, that this, this particular word's used in the New Testament, it's used of receiving food uh, several times in the book of Acts. It's used that way in the Gospels as well, receiving meat, receiving food or taking, they took food, they took uh, meat. Uh, on, uh, for instance, one that comes to mind, I think it's in Acts 27, Paul's journey to Rome, remember the boat wreck, the shipwreck and that, and uh, it says that they, they had not, uh, I'm trying, I, I can't quote it exactly, but they, hadn't, they fasted for you know, some 14 days because of the storm and all this stuff, and then it says when they had received meat, they started throwing everything off the ship because they were going to wreck and, and all that. But that received, it's the idea of the same word. It's, it's, it's they took it in to themselves, all right? So uh, not that we're being eaten, all right, in salvation. But, it, but again, there's an interesting picture. The, the other side of the word is, okay, it's a person can receive someone else. 
they can you know, bring them in close and so that they're now welcome around them. They're part of uh, kind of, you could say, their inner circle. They're, they're very close to them. And this is the particular word that's used. Now, in this, and some, there, there are a couple key aspects of salvation that we can see being illustrated in this letter. And, of course, one of those uh, is, uh, let me look here, um, in, in uh, verse 12, he says, whom I have sent again, of course, he, Onesimus, he, he mentions his name back in verse 10, and he says, receive him, that is, mine own bowels. Uh, now, you see there the relationship that Paul is expressing with Onesimus, okay? Now, timing-wise, again, in this particular instance, Paul had uh, gotten, can I say it this way, gotten into a good relationship with Onesimus before Onesimus was reconciled back to Philemon. Now, in salvation, you know, all of that's instantaneous and, and so on. It's not like, you know, there's, you have to get right here and then later God accepts you, no. Uh, and that's why I said before that, you know, although this illustrates salvation, there, there's no pictures in the Bible of any kind of human relationships and situations that perfectly illustrate, all right, God and, you know, various things. But when you put them all together, you can see a wonderful picture, okay? But in this, you have, you have uh, because of... Uh, uh, Onesimus's, keeping the name straight sometimes confusing, but Onesimus's relationship to Paul now as, number one, a son in the faith, right? He says, I've begotten him in my bonds. He now has that relationship with Paul. So Paul's writing to uh, Philemon, you know, saying, because he's, he's in good with me now, he can become, he can be back good with you, so to speak, all right? And, and because Paul and Philemon had a good relationship, all right? So, I mean, you, you see that aspect of salvation, again, because it's Christ, because of Christ's relationship with God, sinners can have a right relationship with God, all right? You have, uh, in fact, Paul even said in verse 13, we didn't talk much about this when we were going uh, a couple weeks ago, talking about uh, it would have been profitable, all right? He used that as one of the reasons um, but he says, whom I would have retained, that in thy stead he might have ministered. And Paul's saying, you know, I'd like to just keep him here with me and let him keep helping me. He, he could do that in your place, Philemon. But the right thing to do was to send him back so that they could be reconciled. All right? Um, <clears throat> excuse me, that in thy stead he might have ministered unto me in the bonds of the gospel. Then verse 14, but without thy mind I would do nothing. Again, Paul knew it was the right thing to do. All right, that thy benefit should not be, as it were, of necessity, but willingly. In other words, if you want to send him back, that's fine. But you're going to have to do it willingly. I'm not going to keep him and force you to uh, relinquish him, so to speak, is, is the idea of that. And then verse 15, for perhaps he departed for a season that thou shouldest receive him forever. Just a little kind of caveat there is, all right, salvation. When a person's saved, it's forever. It's not a probationary thing. Paul wasn't sending him back saying, you know, watch him for 30 days and make sure he's, he's still acting right. No, he was sending him back with all confidence that, of a couple things. In fact, uh, getting into some of the, the lesson here for today is that not just that Philemon would do the right thing and, and welcome him back, but that Onesimus would do right. I mean, think about that. Paul was kind of going out on a limb here 
sending him back with, obviously, and saying, you know, hey, he's coming back with my seal of approval. He's coming back, you know, I'm going to make right what he's, what he's done, all this. I mean, Paul's kind of going out on a limb on that respect, but it was, he was confident, all right? And it's a, it's a forever thing, all right? Then in verse 16, now, not now as a servant, but above a servant, a brother beloved, especially to me. Again, uh, Paul reiterating the fact that he, he had a great love for Onesimus, all right? He had seen him come to Christ. And probably, you know, we don't know what kind of time frame exactly had transpired in this, but there was probably some amount of time so that uh, uh, Onesimus could have grown and established himself as a, a if you want to say, a responsible Christian. And now Paul's, again, willing to send him back here. Um, But uh, that he would be profitable to Philemon. How much more unto thee, both in the flesh and in the Lord. Then if thou count me, therefore, a partner. Again, based on Paul and Philemon's relationship, he's going out on a limb, so to speak, all right? And putting himself on the line. You realize Jesus put himself on the line, so to speak, for for sinners. Um, uh, if thou count me therefore a partner, receive him as myself. Again, the word receive there, it's the exact same word as in verse 12, but he says receive him as myself. That's such an important thing because, again, that pictures, again, there's no perfect pictures, but that pictures, that illustrates very emphatically, if you want to say, the whole essence of salvation. When God welcomes a sinner, he's welcoming, he's welcoming them because of Christ. And he's welcome, welcoming, I can't say that this much, he's welcoming them in Christ. So when we, uh, you know, you've heard, probably heard it said and, and stated different ways, but when God sees us, he sees us in Christ. He sees us, you could say, through Christ. He sees us in that relationship, which is completely different than he views us before salvation. God loves people, but uh, I don't want to get into all that right now, but, but unbelievers are in a precarious situation before God. They have no relationship to God. They are, I mean, uh, I guess we could take time and look at some of these verses, but they are in Ephesians. It talks about how they're alienated from the life of God. They are enemies in their wicked works. Uh, In the book of Ephesians, Colossians, and in Romans, particularly these three books, you can see a lot of these descriptions. They are unforgiven. That, that word is specifically used of, of unbelievers. They're unforgiven. They are unrighteous. Now, that's true uh, even of us in our, in our character, all right? But yet, in salvation, a believer is made righteous. And that's always the terminology that's used. It's not that we are righteous, but we have been made righteous. That's because of the imputation aspect of salvation. Christ's righteousness has been put to our account so that when God sees us, again, you've probably heard different illustrations and I've heard preachers you know, describe it different ways, but when God looks at your records, so to speak, he, he sees the righteousness of Christ because that's been put in your account. 
He doesn't see your filthy, rotten, sinful acts and self. He sees the righteousness of Christ. And that's how he can look at us and receive us and welcome us. Again, it's all because of Christ. All right, now uh, we got we to press on here this morning. But in, in rounding out this appeal for Onesimus, Paul hints at the responsibility that Philemon had as a Christian and expressed confidence in his friend's character that he would do all that was requested and more. So there's really two different factors we want to bring in here and then again look at some uh, parting words or the, the closing uh, aspect of this uh, epistle this morning. So actually in uh, verse 19 is where we'll pick up here this morning. We, we, we included the last part of, or the first part, excuse me, of verse 19 last week. I, Paul, have written it with mine own hand. I will repay it. And, and that's the last part we saw last week, that Paul was personally guaranteeing that whatever Onesimus had made, had wronged, that Paul would make it right. I mean, that's an amazing, an amazing thing. And again, we see that in salvation, Christ makes it right. To me, one of the wonderful aspects of salvation, which this is yet future from our perspective, from God's perspective, it's present. That's, that's the, again, the interesting thing about it, all right, um, is that God has forgiven us, right? He has justified us. That's a good biblical word used in salvation. God has declared the believing sinner to be righteous. Again, that doesn't mean that you personally are righteous, but God has, he has declared you righteous and he treats you as righteous. But do you realize that one day for us personally, there's coming a time when we will be righteous. I mean, <laughs> that's amazing. But in, in just for instance, in Revelation 21, Verse 4, let me turn there and, and read that. Go ahead and turn to the verse. It's, it's, a, it's a wonderful verse, all right? Uh, now, this is talking about a specific group of people, but this would be true, I believe, for all people that will be, be saved, okay? But this is talking about a specific group here. But um, Revelation 21, verse 4, Revelation 21, 4, give everybody a chance to get there. All right, this is talking about a future time here, all right? But he says... Um, well, let me, let me just start at the beginning of the chapter for sake of context. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be with them and be their God. Those are amazing statements right there, all right? But what I was getting at was verse 4. And God, notice, notice this, and God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, now, the last phrase here is the key, for the former things are passed away. Now, this is amazing to me to think about this, that there's coming a time. Now, I think for us, all right, this hap the, the timing of this happens before this particular group of people, but the point is, part of our salvation is one day there's coming a time when God's going to wipe away all that stuff. 
all the bad, think about this, all the bad that we've experienced, all the sins, I mean, that, that are on our, that are, you know, stains in our mind and life, everything, it's going to be wiped away. Now, again, in God's judicial book, it already is. The righteousness of Christ put to your account, you're forgiven, your debt's wiped away, canceled, Christ's righteousness is there. But we're not experiencing that yet. But there's coming a time when for us, all that stuff's going to be wiped away. And that last phrase, it says, have passed away. The former things, I already turned the page, but the, and the former things have pa uh, shall pass away. That phrase, pass, shall pass away, it's the idea of, it's not like they're going to be just a distant memory to us. They will be gone. We won't even, it's a, it'll be as if it never happened. It, I mean, it's going to be totally... There's coming a time when you won't even remember committing a sin. That's a wonderful, wonderful thing to think about. Because I don't know about you, but I mean, there's times, I mean, I just, it's like a plague in your mind because I can become so aggravated with myself and that, you know, and, and that's probably one of the ways, I guess, that the enemy knows how to get me down, you know, is I get so I, I just feel like a total failure, and I just, you know, I get so aggravated because, to be honest with you, I can't forget all this stuff that God's forgiven me of. I mean, I can't, and, you know, we, we don't have that ability. Now, the, the thing for us is, you know, the Bible talks about the renewing of our mind and, and washing and so on. I mean, we need to get God's Word filled fill our minds with God's Word so it kind of suppresses that other stuff, takes the active place of it. But the point is, there are times that things can still come back. And, but there's coming a time when it won't, it, it, it'll be to us as if it never happened. I mean, that is, that's, that to me, that is a wonderful thing to think about. And I can't wait for that. But, uh, but that's a wonderful thing. Now, in, okay... Uh, we were talking about that, I guess, in the, in the phrase that Paul's saying, I will repay it. He's, he's going to make every wrong that Onesimus committed to Philemon right. He's guaranteeing it. Now, again, how Paul would do that, I really don't know exactly, okay? But the point is, in Christ, Christ has done that before God the Father, and so God the Father can treat us as righteous. That's all involved in that whole aspect of justification and imputation and, and that propitiation where, I mean, Christ is the propitiation. And then it also talks about his blood is propitiation. But Christ, who he is, his person, and what he's done satisfies God so that God can justify, he can declare righteous the believing unrighteous person, and he still be righteous because Christ has paid it all. He is fully satisfied the holiness of God concerning man's sin. And that's amazing because men have done a whole lot of sins. And again, we've used Adolf Hitler a couple times as an example. I mean, just think about him, but you compound everybody else into that equation, that's a whole lot of nastiness and disgust before God. But yet Christ makes it all right. I can't necessarily 
understand it all, but we have to believe what the Bible says, what God tells us. And uh, it's not that we deserve it again, but it's because of Christ, who he is. Now, anyway, let me, uh, in verse 19, now you'll see the, the, the verse kind of breaks up here in the middle. He says, I, Paul, have written it with mine own, own hand. I will repay it. Now you'll notice there's a, a colon there and then another phrase here. Albeit, I do not say unto thee how thou owest unto me even thine own self besides. And then verse 20 as well. Yea, brother, let me have joy of thee in the Lord. Refresh my bowels in the Lord. So you see here kind of another appeal here. And just called this the, the appeal of Christian responsibility. Now, Paul's saying, uh, you know, I'll repay it. I've written it. I've guaranteed it in writing here. I'll repay it. And then you'll see, I'll be it. Anybody have an idea what that word means? That's a word we don't use very often nowadays. But not really. Uh, it's the idea of, it's kind of like, so that I don't. It's lest. Sometimes the phrase would be translated, lest we do this. In other words, so that you don't, so that I don't in this case. And in, in other words, what he's saying is, Paul, I, Paul, have written it with mine own hand. I will repay it. And then it's like, so that I don't have to tell you how you even owe me. All right? That's the idea. And, and think of this now. Uh, although Paul's saying that Philemon really owes him. Now, again, this is not so much perfectly illustrating God the Father, God the Son. Although we could say this, that God the Son does owe God. God the Father owes God the Son to forgive us because of what he did. Okay? I mean, in other words... Any sinner that comes to, again, we use the extremes, Adolf Hitler, whoever, any sinner that comes in repentance and faith in Christ, God will receive them. If he doesn't, he's wronging the son because the son has done everything to pay for everybody. But Paul's saying to Philemon here, actually, you owe me, all right? In other words, and probably referring to the fact that that Paul had been influential in Philemon coming to the Lord, all right? And, and what he's saying is, okay, I don't want to go there. I don't want to put this guilt trip on you that you owe me something is the idea. So just know that whatever's been wronged, I'll pay it. But when you think of this, Paul's saying that although, although Philemon owes him, he'll pay Onesimus's debt to Philemon if need be, in order to have the two reconciled. Now, we don't know if Paul ever did have to repay anything. Philemon may not have required that, all right? And, but the point is, Paul was willing to do it, all right? Now, in, in salvation, Christ has paid everything. He's paid everything to the extent that no matter who it is that comes to God through Christ can be saved, will be saved. Even all those that do not. I mean, again, the extent of what Christ has done is far, it far surpasses the, how can I say it, the amount of forgiveness that will be given out. There's still, in other words, the, the potential forgiveness still superabounds what is taken advantage of by the humans, by us, in coming to God. It's there. 
All right, but notice, notice this IOU attitude, okay? And, and this, this kind of brings this out to me here in this, all right? Uh, the idea is, all right, Paul refers to a debt here, all right, that Philemon owed him, but um, I, none of us can say that God owes us anything, okay? But the point is, we owe God, for sure. Now, we shouldn't serve him, in trying to pay him back, because there's, I mean, that's a futile effort. We will never pay him back. We could never pay him back. The point is, God wants us to serve him out of love. I mean, that love is the, seen in the Bible, is the greatest motivation, right? Um, again, I look at it, a couple examples of that. I mean, obviously in 1 Corinthians 13, it clearly says it, but in uh, you think of the Ten Commandments. What's the very first commandment? Thou shalt have no other gods before me. In other words, you could say God's saying, I am to have first place, period. End of story. doesn't matter what and what all else, but God's supposed to be first. And then when Jesus was asked about the commandments, remember what was Jesus' answer as to what the greatest commandment is? He said, thou shalt love the Lord thy God, all right. In other words, Deuter or well, it isn't Deuteronomy, but Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy, the Ten Commandments. It's worded in a negative, from a negative direction. Don't you know? Let anything come between me and you. God should have first place. But Jesus words it in a positive way. You're to love God supremely. All right. Love is the greatest motivation. And the po point is, there's not a human being alive that ever loves God as we should all the time and to the extent that we should. None of us do, even those that are, have been saved by him, all right, and experienced salvation, have a good relationship with him now through Christ. We still don't do that, all right? But the point is that that should be our desire. We should be striving to be loving God more and more. Uh, but each of us has a debt of love, both to Christ and to others in reality, because that's part of our Christian responsibility is to be loving others, right? Now, that doesn't come natural many times. Now, some people are easy to love. Some people are not easy to love. They make it very hard, <laughs> all right? But, uh, and we're not going to talk about all the specifics of that right now, but, but obviously, we, when, when you think about what we owe people, what, you know, and I listed three things here. What, what should be, if we think about that, do we owe anybody? If somebody were to come up and ask you, without this lesson, all right, so kind of, if they were to ask you, do you owe anybody anything? First thing that we think of maybe is money, all right, yeah, but uh, what do we owe people? Think about that. I mean, and I think you can see this scriptural example, the Apostle Paul and so on, but we owe people the gospel. And you know, the majority of times when I think about it in, in my experience and observation, which is Limited, obviously, to me. Uh, but in my experience and observation, whenever the, this kind of aspect is talked about by preachers and that, the emphasis is always put on because you don't want people to go to hell or you shouldn't want people to go to hell. So you should, you should you know, give them the gospel and so on. And obviously, we shouldn't want anybody to go to hell. But I believe the greatest reason that we can give the gospel out is because we love the Lord Jesus. Um, is anybody familiar with the, I know you've heard it before, but, uh, and Andy may have, 
but is anybody familiar with the story of the Moravians? And uh, back in the 1700s, uh, the Moravians were a group that, anyway, they were, uh, the, the Moravians exist today, but are very anti-anything biblical, pretty much. But uh, they, they were a group that, uh, anyway, they had a lot of missionary zeal. And they, they sent people out as missionaries, trying to give the gospel out. Now, they were off on some doctrines and, and so on, but they had a, had a desire to get the gospel out. Anyway... There were two young men that, uh, anyway, the, and I can't remember the name of the islands, but in the West Indies somewhere, there was an island that uh, a man, a British man, owned, and he owned all the slaves there. And he was, he was very atheistic, hated God, all this. He would not let, not allow anybody to come in and preach the gospel to these slaves. These two Moravian young men had such a burden for, you know, God laid it on their heart for that particular island, those particular slaves, that they decided the only way they could get there was to sell themselves to this man as slaves. That's what they ended up doing. And as they were leaving uh, England on the, uh, the boat, the last words that were ever heard by their families from these men as they were, you know, telling their goodbyes and everything as the boat goes out, one of the men, don't know his name or anything, he hollered, and this is the statement that's attributed to him, he hollered, may the lamb that was slain receive the reward for his suffering. Think about that statement for a second. That was his desire was that they were going not so that these people could be you know, freed and, and so that they could, you know, not go to hell. I mean, obviously that's involved in it. But their greatest desire was they wanted Christ, who had suffered for these people, to receive the reward for his suffering, which would have been the souls of these people. But, I mean, think of it that way. We often hear it, you know, from the humanitarian society, so to speak. We, we don't want people to suffer in hell, which obviously... There's, there's, you know, right in that, but I believe, again, a greater cause is our love for Christ because we want Him to be glorified. And again, every, every person that's saved, it's as if, all right, you know, Christ is, is receiving more reward for what He went through, what He did, all right? Um, I mean, the book of Ephesians talks about in eternity, basically, we are trophies of God's grace. It's kind of like a, a, a hall of trophies. You know, I mean, we're, we're there in heaven, but everybody that's there is just there to display the grace of God and, and so God can get credit. It's, you know, it's not about us. It's about Him. Anyway... Uh, we, ought, we ought to have the attitude of owing the gospel to all men. Again, I have a couple examples there. In, for, in Romans 1, all right, Paul talks about that. And then in uh, 2 Corinthians 5, that's the, the passage where he talks about how God has given us the ministry of reconciliation. But he says in, uh, in fact, turn there, turn there. I think it's important enough to turn there. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 2 Corinthians 5, the last portion of that passage
In fact, it's hard to leave out any of it. If we go back to verse 9, all right, first eight verses uh, talk about, you know, we're absent from the body and so on, present with the Lord. But verse 9, he says, wherefore we labor that whether present, in other words, still here, or absent from this body, we may be accepted of him. Now, he's not talking about like God will see us and save us because notice the next verse. He says, for we must all appear. The word for is an explanation, right? So we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that everyone may receive the things done in his body according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad, right? So we labor because we want to, we want to be accepted, all right? We want to be pleasing, that's the idea, to God when we stand before Him. And then notice, he says, knowing therefore the terror of the Lord. Now, I've heard, of, again, preachers say that, you know, he's talking about the terror of the Lord. God's going to send people to hell. That's not what this is talking about. This is talking about Paul standing before the judgment seat of Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ. It was a fearful thing for Paul to think about standing before the Lord Jesus Christ. And if it was fearful for the Apostle Paul, I mean, how much more should we take it seriously, all right? He says, uh, knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, what? We persuade men. Why? Because we want to be pleasing to Him. So we're persuading men. But we are made manifest unto God, and I trust are also manifest in your consciences, for we commend not ourselves again to you, unto you, but give you occasion to glory on our behalf, that ye may have somewhat to answer them, which of glory in appearance and not in heart. For whether we be beside ourselves, it is to God, or whether we be sober, it is for your cause. And then verse 14, for the love of Christ constraineth us. And grammatically, this could be either Christ's love to us, and I think it's true here, he had such a hold on us, is what Paul's saying, he had such a hold on Paul that it overwhelmed him. But also, I believe he's talking about his love for Christ. And it had, he, he loved Christ enough that he was willing to do whatever. And that's obviously what we should, the attitude we should have. Um, and then again, he goes on, but then down in verse uh, 17, therefore, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature, old things are passed away, behold, all things become new, and all things are of God, who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ, and hath given to us the ministry of reconciliation, to wit, or that is, that God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God did beseech you by us, we pray you in Christ's stead, be reconciled to God. All right, and then verse 21, that great verse there. But the point is, what he's saying is, we're here because God's given us, we love, we, I mean, we, we want to please Him. It's a fearful thing to think standing before Him and being ashamed. We want to, we want to be confident, as 1 John uh, 3 says, 2 and 3, because uh, we want to please Him, all right? And His love's got a hold on us, and we love Him enough that we want to be faithful to Him. And he's given us this ministry of reconciliation. And then he says, it's commit the word of reconciliation is committed unto us. The word, the message of reconciliation. In other words, that's why we're ambassadors for him. I mean, you see the whole idea here that Paul's mentality was he's here in this life merely because he loves Christ. He wants to, he, he wants to tell everybody about Christ. That's the idea. And that's, that's the attitude attitude we should have. There's obviously a whole lot more there. But 
Along with that, I think, is this, and this is the opposite of this is so true in our society today. Secondly, attitude of others do not owe me anything compared to what I owe God. Have people wronged you? Sure. We talked about this uh, way back, a couple lessons ago. I mean, no matter what, we should be willing to forgive others because of what Christ has forgiven us, what God has forgiven us of, what Christ has done, all right? But, you know, most people in our society are absorbed with their rights. This is my right. I mean, even Christian people in America today, I mean, I hate to see what's happening politically and, you know, all that in our, in our country, in our society, but the bottom line is we're just pilgrims here. I mean, this is, you know, tomorrow's Memorial Day. I think it's appropriate that a society honor those that have given their lives for their, and particularly us, for our freedom. The people that want to disdain all that and burn the flag and, and all this kind of stuff. The only reason they have the right to do that is because people have suffered and paid the price so that they have the freedom to do that. I mean, it's an oxymoron in a way in our society, but yet... The point is, it's nothing compared to what God has done for us. And in reality, although, you know, I, there's, there's a line, uh, again, you know, there's a balance in that for us. I've struggled with that in recent years, to be honest with you. I mean, I'm a patriotic American, but at the same time, we're just pilgrims here. Our real citizenship is in heaven. It's not here. We're just here on a temporary basis. We're here as ambassadors for the king of heaven. And that's really ought to be the main thing in our minds. Not we're Americans and we have these rights and, and so on. And, and, and that can be a struggle. But the third, attitude of owing no one anything but love. We, we should, you know, strive that if we do wrong somebody, we do what we have to to make it right be willing to swallow our pride and so on, all right? But, you know, Christ wants us to live selflessly, not selfishly. And then the second attitude here, and uh, I'm running out of time fast, but Paul was hinting that Philemon owed, him, owed himself to Paul, apparently since Paul led him to Christ, but he requested only to be refreshed. The idea is Paul's not saying, all, you know, you owe me, and so I'm expecting you to do all this stuff for me. Paul's basically just saying, the only thing I'm requesting of you is that you provide. Remember, he's already referred to how Philemon was a refreshment to others and saying, I just want you to refresh me. And he's not talking about, you know, uh, give me all this stuff, make me comfortable, that idea. But in other words, I want to see you do the right thing. And that will be a blessing to my soul is what Paul's saying to my heart. Um, that's the gist of it, all right? And then verses 21, 22, you see this appeal of Christian confidence. Now, it's interesting here. I can turn my page. You see verse 21, he says, Having confidence in thy obedience, I wrote unto thee. In other words, Paul said, you know what? I, I, had, I, got, I have confidence you're going to do the right thing. That's why I'm writing. And, and again, I think Paul probably... It's reasonable to assume he had spent time with the Lord over this matter. The Lord prompted him to write this and gave Paul assurance that all would be well. You know, I think it's reasonable to assume that. We don't have that stated exactly that way. 
But he says, having confidence in thy obedience, I wrote unto thee, knowing that thou wilt also, wilt also do more than I say. I mean, Paul's saying, you know what? I'm confident you're not only going to do what I've asked you to do, but you're going to do more than that because of who you are. You know, he had, he had good character and so on, so he was confident in that. Again, and we, we referred to that some before when we were talking about Philemon's character. And, you know, some people it's easy to count on, some people not. But obviously Philemon was one of those that you could count on. But so he had confidence in Philemon's obedience in verse 21. All right, we, we read that. I'm going to move on. Verse 22, I want you to notice here, in fact, for time's sake, I'm just going to point it out. This is uh, interesting because all the way through this letter, you see now that it begins, Paul saying, Paul and Timothy, uh, that they're, they're writing to Philemon, and then he names Aphia and Archippus, and to the church in thy house. All right, and all throughout here, he's talking specifically just to Philemon because he's saying thee, thou, thine, which, again, that's Pastor Brinker's talking about the King James Bible, and hopefully I'm not intruding, going over the threshold here right now, but this is one of the, one of the practical merits of our King James Bible versus uh, the modern translate, there's a lot, but this is one of those that many people overlook. In fact, a lot of people don't like, they think, about it. But in the King James Bible, you have the old pronouns used, thee, thou, thine, etc. All right? Some of you probably already know this, but the, the distinction is, okay, think of it this way. When we, in, in our use of English today, we say, how are you doing? If I were to just say that, who am I talking to? If I say, how are you doing? You know, in other words, there's something there that indicates. But how do we know the difference between you singular and you plural? Now, in the South, they got that figured out. They say, y'all. <laughs> that means you all, right? That, all of you, that's actually what it means. Uh, versus you, singular. But everywhere else, you know, I mean, you know, we just say you, in, in western Pennsylvania they say youans, yous uh, and things of that sort. Uh, but anyway, okay, typically in English we have to rely on something, some kind of context or Verb, you know, just kind of eye contact or body language or something like that to know that distinction. In, in the KJV, it's already there in the grammar because the, thou, all the T pronouns, those are you singular. The Y pronouns, you, ye, those are your, those are second person plural, all right? So notice in this, throughout the whole letter, Verse 21, for, exa for example, having confidence in thy obedience. He's, he's mentioning that to Philemon particularly, only Philemon, thy, you singular. Knowing that thou, that's Philemon, right? And then he says, you'll also do more than I say, all right? Then he says, but with all, prepare me also a lodging, for I trust that through, notice the pronoun used there, your prayers. He's not talking just to Philemon there. It's you, all of you. So who was he writing to? 
right? In this instance, in this letter, Philemon was the only one that could do what he's asking to receive Onesimus back. But he's also asking others that are there, Philemon's wife, Philemon's son, we, we, say, we assume wife and son, and the church in his house, right? He's asking them all to pray for him. All right, I trust that through your prayers I shall be given unto you. There, salute thee. So you see, he goes back to the singular. All right, but then down in verse 25, notice this, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. It's plural, all of you, with your spirit. Now, it's interesting, it has spirit singular. Uh, there's some things I was going to say there, but don't have time to. But the bottom line is, this was a wonderful, wonderful letter, wonderful example of... Uh, Things that are involved in our salvation illustrated for us through this personal exchange between Paul and Philemon and about Onesimus. A lot of, a lot of wonderful things here, but we've got to stop uh, with that. And so uh, hopefully that was uh, uh, encouraging to you, uh, the, this look at this little book. I don't know, I mean, I've never, I've only, I only remember in my life experience the, this book being preached out of one time, one time, and, and I can remember it, remember who preached it and that, and it was, uh, it made an impression on me and that, and later I wanted to study it more, but uh, anyway, let's go ahead and pray, and we'll be dismissed. Father, thank you for your blessings in the Lord Jesus Christ. We could never, never repay you. We could never express enough thanks, but thank you for the Lord Jesus and all that he is and has done, and the blessings that we have because of that. We ask these things in Jesus' name and for his sake we pray, amen.